This morning, I want to spend some time on the question of lessons and carols. And I wanted to spend some time with lessons and carols, not just because it's this funny service we do once a year, but because it, the story of lessons and carols captures something about the part of the Christian movement that we find ourselves in. Our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, likes to call us the Episcopal branch of the Jesus movement. Uh, and that's a very particular um, place setting for who we are and where we come from. And I wanted to talk a little bit about lessons and carols, but I also wanted to hit on the theology of this time of year. So there's a very famous theologian, Paul Tillich. How many of you heard Paul Tillich's name before? Paul Tillich was maybe the most famous theologian of the last century, uh, one of at least. He's a German-American, is born in Germany, ends up in Chicago. And Paul Tillich is known partly for his sense of humor, but it's Paul Tillich who calls the incarnation the Anglican heresy the Anglican heresy, which I just find to be a really kind of delightful idea, this image of incarnation as a particular Anglican thing. Uh, there's an Episcopal priest I know who one time was describing the various branches in the Jesus movement by holidays. Uh, he said, if, if we wanted to explain to somebody how Christianity is divided into all of these different sort of branches and movements with their different emphases, we could assign them all holidays. And so the Lutherans, with their um, emphasis on, uh, on, on sin and repentance and on God's work on the cross, their holiday would be Good Friday. For the Roman Catholics, uh, with the emphasis on Eucharistic theology and on what happens to bread and wine, uh, you might give them the Feast of Corpus Christi. Uh, for the Orthodox, with the sense of ancient tradition and the emphasis on the resurrection, you could say the Feast of Easter. Uh, for Pentecostals, you could say Pentecost, with all that emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And so where would you put Episcopalians? And the real question is, where could you put Episcopalians? Where could you put Anglicans but Christmas? So I want to spend a little bit of time with theology and incarnation this morning, and then get into the history of lessons and carols and what it's seeking to do. And some of what I will cover has been covered in some ways before, uh, by Adam Ployd, our theologian from Eden Seminary, who's a regular visitor, uh, including the picture I'm about to show. So let's, for a minute, get into this idea of the incarnation. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor, who's an Episcopal priest in Georgia, now teaches, I think she's now retired from teaching, but just wrote a book called Holy Envy, where she talks about teaching a survey and religion course at the college where she taught. Um, when she comes to her chapter on Christianity, 
And so she's written chapters on Islam, on Judaism, on Buddhism, what it's like to take these often very rural Georgian college students into the faith traditions of other traditions. And she says that when she teaches the course, which is really about four class sessions on Christianity, she always starts each of these um, sessions on the various religions with a quiz to make sure the students have done their reading. And she says, in Inevitably, every time when she gave the quiz on Christianity, more than half the class would fail. Even though these are mostly evangelical, mostly grew up in some form of a Baptist tradition, very serious about Bible study, very serious about Sunday school, these students would fail their exam, their, their quiz on what is Christianity. And I find that really interesting. She said because part of what it takes to look at doctrine, to look at a religion, is to take an outsider view. How often do we take an outsider view of our faith? If you take an outsider view of incarnation, it's a pretty odd idea. Um, and I thought that this um, image from the Flanders School, it's a medieval painting of the incarnation, is a particular sort of entrance into how odd of an idea this is. So this is a painting of the Annunciation. So you have the angel, Gabriel, coming to tell Mary um, about what is going to happen. Mary is going to consent. But then zoom in. Do you see up by the window, there's a little cross? Let's look closer. There is this idea that some kind of flying baby Jesus came down from heaven and entered into Mary's womb. And I introduced the strange image because it's a strange idea. It's a very strange idea, this idea of the incarnation. And sometimes when we're insiders, when we love the celebration of Christ Christmas so much, we, we don't quite think about how odd it is what we're doing, what we're celebrating. It's an odd idea, the incarnation. And know too that how we talk about incarnation is very much shaped by um, what's going on in our culture at the time and particularly around questions of um, childbirth and questions of science around where babies come from. So in the medieval period, the science had not developed much since the time of Jesus and before. And so there's a part of Christian doctrine that is dependent on a biology that's actually out of date. But for a very long time, human beings thought that the child came from the father's seed and that the mother was the ground in which the seed was planted. So our understanding now about chromosomes and about how um, children come to be and the sharing of chromosomes and genetic material, that didn't exist for most of human history. And so to understand the incarnation, you partly need to know something about medieval and, and ancient understandings of biology, which is that children were children of a father. They were single-sourced. It comes up in the creed, um, the way that Jesus is said to have come into being. Uh, the very divine identity of Jesus 
it has this idea in biology that is now out of date. And so there are theologians today asking the question of what does it mean understanding biology the way we do for the incarnation? What does it mean to say that Jesus took the flesh of Mary, his mother, knowing what we know today? How does that change? How does that nuance? And we're not going to get too deep into those questions, but it does introduce this this interesting dilemma into how strange this doctrine is, how weird this doctrine is, this idea that God was born among us. So it's weird, but it's not entirely unique. So Christianity is not alone in this idea about God becoming human. This is an image of one of the emanations of Vishnu. Um, But in uh, in Hinduism, there are, well, Hinduism is really a family of Hinduisms. There are many, many, many traditions within Hinduism. But in some of those traditions, the idea of God becoming human and dwelling among the people is common. And in the ancient world, it wasn't an uncommon story. In Egyptian uh, religious traditions, there was this idea of God dwelling among people. In other religious traditions, often God has a particular look, or you can sort of tell. In the Egyptian traditions, uh, the God humans have animal features. In uh, Hinduism, some of the stories of a baby Krishna running around, the child is blue. And so you see the little blue child running around in the images, and you know that from the blue body that that is God. But this idea that God can become human, can take on humanity, is not unique to Christianity. But Christianity means something unique when we talk about the Incarnation. I want to get into the Bible for just a second. So, the doctrine of the Incarnation as we know it today the idea about how God became human is present in the Bible, and it took quite a bit of fighting to get there. In a little bit, we'll have a quote from Athanasius, who's sort of one of the early patristic um, church fathers and mothers, but, but really the great teacher on the Incarnation. But in the early church, the idea of the divine and human identities of Jesus was not settled Uh, for several hundred years. There were all sorts of ideas about how Jesus was divine. Was Jesus a sort of semi-divine human being, sort of like Hercules in Greek mythology? Uh, Was uh, Jesus God, but just sort of in the image of humanity, sort of like God wearing a flesh suit, um, God wearing a costume? And So know that the scripture, while it points in the direction of what we now call incarnation, it took some development to get to where we are. There were people making faithful arguments, reading the same scriptures and saying, well, no, Jesus appeared to be human, but was never fully human, was always fully divine. And there were the same people reading the same scriptures and saying, well, Jesus was a God-like human, but was not fully divine. And where the church settles out, what we consider the Catholic faith, lowercase c, the universal faith, uh, the faith that we proclaim in the creed, is this idea of the union, 
of fully human and fully divine. But it took a while to get there. And at the same time, there are hints in scripture about incarnation that, that get us there. Probably the most famous is this from um, the prologue to John's gospel, that first chapter of John's gospel. Interestingly, some of the things that point us to incarnation, even in scripture, are thought by scholars to be hymns. That first chapter of John's gospel has so much rhythm and rhyme to it that theologians that... Um, that, that biblical scholars think that it may have been sung before it was written in scripture. And the word became flesh and made his home among us. This is the common English Bible that we're using right now. It's what you'll hear in church if you're here for lessons and carols. And the word became flesh and made his home among us. It's in a wider chapter about all this activity about the word. The word here is logos, and it speaks to the particular Greek-speaking philosophical world in which John's gospel was written. The logos was understood and is, is taught to be in this chapter with God and of God. The, um, the word came into being, all things came into being through the word. It's, it's this philosophical concept, logos this sort of divine spoken energy of God that brings all things into creation. And this divine energy, spoken energy of God, this word becomes flesh. It's this incredibly radical idea. And it's already present in John's gospel. That word flesh is worth pointing out. I, I put the transliteration in English right there, sarks. This is the flesh that Paul is always upset about. Uh, there are a number of words for the human body in Greek. Soma is another one. Um, somatics uh, is sometimes talked about in, in biology circles. But soma generally doesn't have a sort of fleshy sense to it. It's sort of the body as a concept. Sarx is flesh the very mean stuff of human beings. It's like, it's like the word incarnation itself. What is, what is the root there? Incarnation. What is it? Oh, well, it's, it's, the, it's flesh. So incarnation is carne, yeah. Like carne adobada in Spanish. It's, it's the flesh of the animal, the flesh of the human being. So this sarx in Greek is, is carne in Latin. It is this sense of enfleshment, which is troublesome, right? It, it makes it, it raises the stakes on this. This idea that God could dwell in what Paul often calls sinful flesh, in the sarx. It's an interesting, it's important that that word is used in John. If it wasn't, probably the early church would have been able to run to some different places. But because the word becomes flesh, sarks, it pushes us to say something very specific. Carl uh, Barth, the Swiss theologian, uh, talked about how in the incarnation, the plane of the divine existence, which we do not know, and the plane of the day-to-day -day human existence, which we know all too well, intersect. There's a very specific claim being made 
with this idea of incarnation. We'll get to it a little bit further on, but this is one piece of scripture. Another piece of scripture, another hymn, interestingly, uh, is in Philippians, the second chapter. And I'm putting in the Common English Bible on purpose because I think we're, we're reading the Common English Bible in church because it makes us sort of re-listen to passages that we may know well. Um, but let's listen to this for a second. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal to God as something to exploit. I hate that translation, that word exploit. It's in the NRSV as well. It's, it's grasp at. Uh, the word is harpazo in Greek, which is the same as the harpies uh, in, in, uh, in Greek mythology, this idea of the claws, the talons. But exploit is not quite that, but you get the idea. Being equal with God is not something to grasp after, to exploit. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This also in Greek rhymes. It has rhythm, it has meter. They think Paul took a hymn that was sung in the early church and incorporated it into his letter to the Philippians. And the idea that both of these hymns were present in the early church Something poetic exists in the Incarnation, which those of you who are students of Anglicanism would say that's not that surprising because Anglicans are often poets first, theologians second. There's a poetry to this that doesn't work itself out in prose quite as well, maybe. What other theme is present here? This idea of God's, um, what's, this is known as kenosis, self-emptying what the theologian uh, Henry Nouwen called downward mobility. There's this idea in the Christ hymn of Philippians that God came down, but that that was a humbling. That was a humbling. An intentional humbling, an intentional coming down in the form of a slave. There's another aspect to incarnation in this that is pretty unique in Christian theology. This idea that in humanity, in human flesh, God was pleased to dwell, that God came down from on high and intentionally inverts that order. There is a flipping upside down that happens. And it's present even here in the early hymnody, in the early bits of scripture, about Jesus, this idea that the incarnation means something radical about hierarchies. I want to bridge from that to Christmas. So Christmas as we celebrate it today is actually only about 150 years old. I'll say something about that in a moment, but it's, a, it's an interesting thing, the way that Christmas has turned into this sort of season of nostalgia and this season of, you know, that we think that Christmas has always been this way. Most of our carols, most of our understanding, most of the beloved poems and, and, and pieces that tell us what Christmas is are sort of Dickensian and forward, sort of 1850s and forward. They come from Victorian England and forward. 
So let's go back to Anglicans have liked incarnation since before all of that. And those who are not Anglicans have really detested the way that Anglicans did Christianity. So John Winthrop and the group that set off to form the Massachusetts Bay Colony, do you know that one of the reasons they were leaving England behind was because of how debauched Christmas had become? They were really anti a lot of the holidays anyway. They saw them all as Romish affectations. Valentine's Day, St. Valentine, who needs a saint that's a Roman thing? The way that they set off on the day after Easter and in all of their proclamations about what they were doing to go off to the New World, they don't even mention Easter because why would you celebrate one holy day when in their world all days were holy? Christmas in particular for the Puritans in England and especially the Puritans that left England behind was a point of contention, was a bone that they wanted to pick because um, Christmas in England had become a drunken festival. The whole town got in on the mess. And, and if you listen to John Winthrop, it was awful. They did not celebrate Christmas in the early colonies because they had left all of that behind. And so you can take that from Winthrop and be negative about it, or because I'm an Episcopalian and my ancestors were all Episcopalians, you say, okay, but let's look at the other side. So one of the carols that actually predates, um, that is not one of the carols that's in our hymnal, but is a sort of popular Christmas song, is We Wish You a Merry Christmas. And my favorite and most people's favorite verse to that song is this one. Now give us some figgy pudding. Now give us some figgy pudding. What's the next verse? And bring it right here, but then the next verse? We won't go until we get some. So, yes, there is a debauched, yes, there is a drunkenness issue around Christmas. And, you know, one would argue there probably still is an issue around these questions around Christmas and most of the holidays. But this is a kind of grainy picture of wassailing. Wassailing is an English tradition that goes back at least to the Middle Ages because Christmas was understood as a time when the power relationships in the world were inverted. The power relationships in the world were inverted. And so the people who lived on the land, who were renting from the landlord, who were farming the landlord's land, would go caroling specifically to the big landlord's house. Think Downton Abbey, if all the farmers came caroling to the abbey. And they would come and they would sing some carols, and then the expectation was that the rich would bless the poor. They would give them their Christmas bonuses, they would give them some figgy pudding, they would host a big meal for the folks that worked the land through the year. And at first, this was probably something that some good landlords did, but it became such a tradition that it became sometimes farce and sometimes almost riotous that the poor had a sense that at Christmas, the power relationships were inverted and they were in a position to make demands on the folks that made demands on them all throughout the year. This idea of the inverting of power relationships also has a, um, an incarnation, as it were, in the Anglican choral tradition. 
There are a number of Anglican cathedrals that have choirs, uh, men and boys choirs, now men and girls choirs as well. But even from the Middle Ages, there was this tradition of the boy bishop, that during Advent, you would dress up one of these little eight-year-olds in a miter and in a um, big cope, and they would get to hold the pastoral staff, and they would act as the bishop through the service. And it was all in this idea of the power relationships being flipped upside down. So when you're talking about wassailing, when you're talking about caroling, know that that used to be semi-revolutionary. This idea of the poor having a place at the table of the landowner. This flipping of things upside down. Now, let's move then into how is that? You can ask these questions of culture, what was going on, but what does that reflect in theology? Why would it be Advent and Christmas when we would say that the relationships are flipped upside down? Does it have something to do with what Philippians is talking about? That this time of year, this time when we celebrate the incarnation, we celebrate this mystery that God chose to dwell with us. That God came down from up on high and chose to be among the lowly and poor. You can hear this theme in so many of our Christmas hymns, in so many of our Christmas traditions. Later today in Lessons and Carols, when we pray the Advent bidding prayer, uh, we say, because this of all things would rejoice Christ's heart, let us remember the poor and the lowly. There is something about this time of year that reminds us that God chose to become like us, and not just like us, but like the poorest among us. That God's coming was first announced to shepherds in the field, the lowest of the low in their society. Athanasius, that uh, patriarch who uh, is, is really understood, the patristic teacher who is really understood as the writer, his book on the incarnation is sort of the early classical text. So Athanasius says this, some may then ask why he, why God, did not manifest himself by means of other and nobler parts of creation and use some nobler instrument, such as sun or moon or stars, instead of mere man. The answer is this. The Lord did not come to make a display. He came to heal and teach suffering men. Uh, that's the way the translation that I have um, renders it. A newer translation would probably take some of the gender out. But here it is. Athanasius is saying this isn't just a show. This is about the way in which people live their lives day to day. God comes to heal to me among those who suffer. So we have this tradition of Christmas that can get a little debauched. And there are a couple of responses to that. Winthrop and his people leave the country, go set up Massachusetts, you know, they're done. There's another response to it. So in the Victorian period for Anglicans, uh, hymnody becomes more and more popular. 
Before about the 1830s, you probably wouldn't have sung hymns in church unless they were ancient hymns that were set by Thomas Tallis or one of those composers, mostly sung by the choir. The people didn't sing in liturgy. Singing Christmas carols was something you did as you went around in the village or you sang in the pub. That thing about Luther taking um, bar songs and turning them into hymns, there's a grain of truth to that. Well, around the same period, well, not the same period, a little bit forward, as you zoom forward, there is this sense, Victorian England brings about this sense of, okay, we ought to do some things that are proper. And there's this sense of, what do we make of Christmas? And that's when you start getting Dickens teaching moral lessons about what Christmas means. It's when you get Channing Moore's Twas the Night Before Christmas. Channing Moore, by the way, professor of Hebrew Bible at the General Episcopal Seminary in New York, an Episcopal priest. His father was Bishop of New York. This is the time when Christmas starts getting reinvented. And not too long after, there's a dean of a cathedral in Truro, England, who later becomes Archbishop of Canterbury, who says, what if we took some of this Christmas caroling that happens in pubs and in villages and brought it inside, brought it into the cathedral, and we read the lessons that tell us of the coming of Jesus. We'd make caroling something that becomes part of church. And that's when Lessons and Carols is born. And I want to point you to, so Lessons and Carols is born in Truro, and it happens in a few incarnations. And then somebody picks it up, the dean of chapel at King's College. And in 1918, it has its incarnation in a very specific way that begins to give shape to what Lessons and Carols has become. So here we are with Lessons and Carols. There's Oscar in a hammock. So Lessons and Carols at King's College always starts with this hymn. It always starts in the dark. It always starts with silence. And then the choir master looks at the group of boys and points. And that child has to sing the first verse of Once in Royal David City alone. No boy chorister has ever missed a note. Can you imagine the pressure? Can you imagine how much those little guys are rehearsing that for the weeks that lead up to lessons and carols? Because not only will that little treble voice um, ring through the chapel at King's, but that little voice will be broadcast throughout the UK on television and throughout the world through the BBC radio. Um, it is said that Lessons and Carols may be the most distributed of any um, broadcast. It's been heard, it's, it's famously said that it's been heard on top of Mount Everest uh, and in Africa. And in, but, but even here in St. Louis on Christmas Eve, 
you can tune in and listen live to lessons and carols from King's College, Cambridge. This tradition that started out as a way to get the folks into the church and out of the pub has become a celebrated way of doing Christmas. And so many carols and so many anthems and so many pieces of music have been written for lessons and carol services that they've really enriched the catalog of what we sing um, in this season. So it's a very particular service, um, and we do it here at Holy Communion because it's part of our heritage, but it's also a way that Anglicans have been trying to bring something of theology into what is otherwise a pretty secular time. So I want to, we've been talking about what life was like in the 1800s and, and even the 1700s and debauched Christianity and what Christmas is. But I also wonder if part of the role of church is to keep asking that question. How do we respond to the way that the world does Christmas? My guess is, as Episcopalians, we're not going to be like Winthrop and vote ourselves entirely off the island. But maybe Christmas isn't as much of an issue with people just being drunk and doing revelry through the town streets. But is Christmas what we want it to be? Does Christmas, as we celebrate it in this country at the moment, does it express something of what we say to be true about the Incarnation? about what we are celebrating this time of year. And if not, then how do we engage in this tradition? So I want to point you to... Um, this, Paul Tillich said uh, that the Incarnation was an Anglican heresy for a very specific reason. We love the Incarnation in the Episcopal Church, in the Anglican tradition. We've created whole services around it. We've written more carols than probably any other tradition. Um, Episcopalians in the United States were the first ones to really do Christmas the way that we do Christmas today, um, to really celebrate the holiday. It was the Episcopalians that sort of kept going with Christmas. But it's more than just about the liturgy. Something about the Incarnation has fascinated Anglican theologians from Archbishop Cranmer, the first architect of the prayer book, the first um, Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, separate from Rome, on down. And usually in an Anglican theology course, you would hear from a whole bunch of these white dudes that are considered the Anglican theologians, the Anglican divines. And I promise you, you can go look at all of them and they'll have something beautiful to say about incarnation. But if I wanted to point you to a Anglican theologian, an Anglican theologian today, I want to point you to Verna Dozier. Uh, Verna Dozier was a laywoman, a very proud laywoman, a high school English teacher um, in Washington, D.C., member of St. Mark's on Capitol Hill, and in the late 20th century became a force for theological education and the voice of the baptized people. And she had this to say about the Incarnation. How troubling if God came as a person and not a book and if that person is eternally living, eternally in communication with God's people, one age can eternally say to another, your understanding is not my understanding. God has a new word to say to us. 
all Anglican theologians have played with the idea of the incarnation, so much so that Paul Tillich worried that we put the incarnation at the center of our theology rather than the cross. We're so emphatic about the incarnation, about this idea about God dwelling with us, that maybe at sometimes Anglicans, the shadow side, lose some of the rest of the story because we're so fascinated by this Christmas story. But Verna Dozier, I think, says into our current culture about what Christianity is, what is at stake? If we believe that God came as a person and not as a book, and if we believe that that person is still available to us, then God's revelation is ongoing. God's work is ongoing. It's not just a history. It's a question of what is Christ's body doing right now? So I started this with an introduction of an image that I don't find really compelling about the incarnation, uh, that, that flying baby. I want to share with you an image that I do find really compelling. Can anybody, this is a, a painting by Lauren Wright Pittman, but can anybody tell me what is going on in this painting, why this is compelling? We have Mary and Elizabeth. There is this idea, and pregnancy is, is a big part of Advent. Um, when I preached a sermon uh, at the first Sunday of Advent, and I talked about this time as a time for impatience, uh, holy impatience. Uh, one of our members who happens to be pregnant came up to me and said, I know something about holy impatience right now. But there is this image at the start of Advent of Mary visiting her cousin Elizabeth, both of them with these very surprising pregnancies. And the two of them are able to bless one another and able to see the story of the divine in what could be very difficult human circumstances. And I love this image because you have Mary and Elizabeth, um, but they're black. And you have Mary and Elizabeth, and they are blessing one another. And there is this sense in this tradition of the incarnation that God can come among what is mean and rough and poor and lowly and difficult, and that is where the divine action happens. So unsurprisingly, I'm going to ask you to talk among yourselves for a couple minutes. Two questions. What is your favorite Christmas carol? Why? And what does it tell you about God and about you? And that's something we miss sometimes in theology, but theology has a whole division about, that we call theological anthropology. What does this tradition say about what it means to be human? So what does your favorite Christmas carol tell you about God and about you? And then what Christmas traditions are particularly meaningful for you? How might they be theologized? And to give you an example of this, this idea of wassailing, of going to the landlord and demanding your figgy pudding, demanding your Christmas bonus. Um, I always get caught on that National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Yeah, but, but in Christmas Vacation, a lot of the tension centers around whether Clark is going to get his Christmas bonus. And then when he's not going to get his Christmas bonus, how terrible of a person that makes his boss. 
well, there's something of history in the idea of Christmas bonuses, and there's something theological in that that goes back to wassailing and goes back to this idea of Christmas being a time when the power relationships are inverted. So what are other Christmas traditions that you can theologize about? So talk amongst yourselves. I'm going to give you just seven minutes. Go ahead, Rudy. I work as Sam's as a food sampler. I've been looking at all the kids this last week, you know, talking about Christmas and talking about the holidays. And there's been quite a few little remarks from little kids. And the, one of the best one was, um, well, don't you know Santa Claus is coming? And then another remark was, well, you know, Santa Claus is coming, but we celebrate Jesus' birthday. And then another little boy, he said, I am really excited because Hanukkah's coming, and I get presents for eight days. <laughs> yeah. I always get a little bit jealous of my Jewish friends because they got eight days of presents. And then I looked at some of the presents that my friend Eli got, and I went, oh, no, I get bigger presents. It's better. <laughs> what else is on your mind? What, what carols came up for me? What hymns? Silent night. Everybody's on. Everybody's at silent night. Anyway, like, once in Royal David City. In the bleak midwinter. So silent night is a German Christmas carol, and I don't know if people know this, but I'm, I'm a German teacher. And um, a couple of things: when when Silent Night was written, I believe I've learned that it was scandalous because it talked about a pregnant young woman, and it talked about a yeah, it was like too, it was explicit for the time. And the German translation of Silent Night says, Holder Knabe im lockigen Haar, which is dear sweet boy with curly hair, which pictures Jesus in a way that maybe he wasn't always pictured at that time. Yeah, I mean, So I think that might have been part of the scandal, but I'm not sure. The, the thing to know about Silent Night, there's a few, uh, Silent Night is one of those, it's, it's, it's incredibly well beloved. And there's a few things about Silent Night, and some of it may be legend, uh, but I'm particularly grateful for Silent Night because theoretically, and I've heard both yes and no on this, but Silent Night was written because an organ had gone out of commission. And so traditionally, Silent Night, it's a Silent Night, you, you didn't have the organ to play for Christmas. Um, and so I'm grateful this year because we don't have an organ to play for Christmas. Uh, we'll have one again early next year, but it's not going to be in in time for Christmas. And so I'm grateful that so many people love Silent Night because... You know, it works well without organ. Um, but, but it is early enough as a carol that it wouldn't be surprising. Remember, the idea of hymn singing in church is a relatively modern thing. Before, and how many of you grew up in an Episcopal church where there was morning prayer? Bob Lewis. Lucy Krieg, not very many, but for a long time, most Episcopal churches did morning prayer most Sunday mornings, and there isn't a lot of hymn singing in morning prayer. There are what are called anthems, usually pieces of scripture sung mostly by the choir, and that is what most folks would have uh, seen. You know, all of those big Mozart masses and things like that where most of the singing was done by a professional choir, the people did not join in, and this idea of popular song in church, relatively new. And so Silent Night 
might have been controversial because of the way it depicts Jesus, um, might have been controversial just because it was a, a mean song brought into church, and that was eh, questionable, especially pure, purist Calvinists would only sing psalms in church. Um, so Germany is still this sort of contested land of um, Reformation. What other people, what other pieces came up for you? Were there other traditions that you theologized? Chris. Oh, I love O, o Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Oh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Yeah, because it just, to not, um, it's such reassuring that that suffering of humanity, that need for humanity for this this Savior is just very upfront. And so if I don't hear it, I mean, it's like an early Advent thing, but I do need to hear it somewhere well, in Christmas. We do it throughout Advent, yeah. No, yeah so, so, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is sort of that inescapable tune, and it's got so many verses. It, it, o Come, O Come, Emmanuel is actually an instance where a hymn was written in response to earlier ch church music. So the O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the, um, the verses are what are known as the O antiphons. And so O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, you'll notice if you look at it in the hymnal, it has specific days listed next to each verse. And it's because it comes from the monastic tradition. And it was, um, it was a piece of chant that was done in the monastic services on that particular day. And it was like the six or seven days that lead up to Christmas. There's an antiphon. There's a little sentence of scripture for each one. And so we put it together as one hymn, but it's got a tradition that's a lot older. Those words come from the early monastic tradition. And they're pieces of scripture that are woven into song. Um, but that, the Advent hymns, it, it's part of why we do lessons and carols, honestly, where we do it. In the, and at Holy Communion, there's a great tradition of hymns for Christmas, but there's almost as much good music in Advent, and Advent is this really short, short season. So we do this, and we actually do more Advent carols than we do Christmas carols at Lessons and Carols, because it lets me cram in more um, Advent carols, because there's all this wonderful longing and sense of um, that God could come into this troubled world, that it's a good thing to remember in a season like this. What else? Randall had an interesting observation about history. <laughs> he won't say it. He goes to Cahokia Mounds oh. for the solstice. Yeah. So, and I'll say a little bit more about this in my sermon next week. Um, but my friend Rory Pickernice, who's a Jewish teacher, she would be a rabbi, but she's an Orthodox woman, and so she's one of the people that's set up as soon as the Orthodox will ordain women. She'll be one of the ones ordained. She's what's known as a maharat. But I heard her preach at the interfaith Thanksgiving service, and she said there's a reason why in this time of year, when we get the darkest night of the year, so many of our religious traditions have celebrations that have to do with light. There's something about holding a candle in the darkness in this time of year. There's something about the coming of the light um, this time of year that is important and that matters, and that in a season of life like we're having as a country right now, it's a good time to have celebrations like the one we're about to have. And I'd like to respond that that, that is why I go. I really enjoy the energy and that focus on the seasons. And although I'm not Druish, I may be a Buddhist capellian. Yeah. 
Well, the, the former Archbishop of Canterbury was initiated into an order of Druids. He said it was all about because he's a poet, but you're in good company. Can we get a microphone up here? Well, okay. um, I've always loved participating when you were talking about the Interfaith Partnership mm -hmm. on Christmas, going with many faiths and putting together meals or whatever um, the group collectively discerns and, and finds out people need in that season and just celebrating one another and how we all perceive God. Yeah. You know, there's something, I mean, there's something magical about all the Jewish friends that show up for Christmas here because they love Christmas carols. Um, but there is a piece about this that remember, it's important sometimes to look at your faith from an outside perspective, which can be hard when your faith is the dominant faith in a area. So in the Christian world that we live in, um, it's hard to get that outsider perspective. But I'm always heartened every year when I see the number of soup kitchens that are taken over by Jewish families on Christmas Day so that the Christians can do Christmas. Um, I'm also always heartened by uh, the ways in which at this time of year we find ways to participate with one another. Um, it's kind of lovely. The uh, Brown College uh, in Rhode Island probably has the oldest service of lessons and carols in the United States. And this year, they started it with the Muslim call to prayer. Um, now, that's an interfaith college chapel, and so that makes sense in a way that doing it in an Episcopal church would not make the same kind of sense. But it's interesting that ways in which we find to participate with one another um, and to celebrate the treasures that each of us bring to this time of year. Other things around Christmas, around lessons and carols? So... Um, Oh, Sandra, you want to have a? Sandra, you mind doing the microphone? Christmas time is when a lot of people think about other people and give. I mean, mm -hmm. in our church, just nationally, there are so many organizations that are doing things to help people. Um, and it's a lot of people, that's probably the time when they do give to charity and do things, yeah, and it's... Yeah, it's hard to tell if it's Christmas and the season of giving or if it's the end of the year giving that drives it, but, well, no, it's, it's a both and, I think, but this, yeah. without fail, this is the biggest month for donations for every church and every nonprofit, without fail. And it's, it's always really interesting if stores are trying to make up, you know, make it into the black on Black Friday. That's why they call it Black Friday, because that's the day in which you start turning a profit for the year. Um, you know, the vestry is always a little bit anxious when it comes to the November, because you're always a little bit down. And then donations come in at the end of the year. December is always our biggest month. There is something about that gift giving. Um, I do wonder about whether there's an invitation to be made at Christmas particularly because there's so much, if, if drunkenness was the craziness of the time that brought about Dickens and Lessons and Carols and John Winthrop, I wonder if consumerism in this season isn't something that the church should be figuring out how to speak better into um, in this time of year. How do we invite folks, if, if they were trying to get them out of the bars and into the church in the 1800s, today I think it's out of the malls or off of their phones and Amazon and into the church. 
I have got to run because it's Lessons and Carols. This is the last forum for 2019. Uh, we will pick up again January 5th um, is an interfaith uh, formation opportunity so the kids and the adults will be together as we get ready to celebrate the Epiphany or having just celebrated the Epiphany during church. Um, so we breakfast and the forum are on pause for the Christmas season uh, and we look forward to seeing you on January 5th for the forum. Thanks so much.